1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SUP China. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SubChina access and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China. From the travails of ethically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region, we are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina, Joining me from Fabled Goldcorn Holler in Nashville, Tennessee, is Jeremy Goldcorn, a man who stands with Hong Kong, but who also stands with Xi Jinping.
0: Who's a great guy, a great guy, a great leader. Jeremy, greet the people. (laughs) Another ridiculous one. Thank you, Kaiser. I'm uh, joined today in my home studio uh, by my daughter's hamster niblet. Um, So, um, uh, uh, niblet, welcome to Seneca.
2: Yes, indeed. Niblet, welcome to the show. Over the weekend, a cache of documents offering details into the operations of China's so-called re-education camps in Xinjiang was released by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ. The release included full English translations of the documents, which included a secret long telegram along with four shorter bulletins about a truly disturbing algorithmic system for determining the list of detainees and a non-classified court document the lead reporter on all of this was bethany allen e bohemian who has worked as a journalist for several organizations including foreign policy and The daily beast and is now at axios bethany joins us today from washington
0: to talk about these releases bethany welcome to Seneca.
1: thanks so much it's great to be here Oh,
0: Bethany, you were recently denied a journalist visa to China. Um, after this, I guess you can kiss that J visa goodbye for quite some time, right? <laughs> uh,
1: yes, I, I think that it is safe to say. Uh, I also don't feel like it, it would probably be a good idea, even for my own safety or the safety of my family, to try to go to China at this time. Um, I've been handling classified Chinese government documents, and uh, I, I think they they frown upon that. So no, I'm not going to be trying to do that anytime soon. Uh,
0: If I was your mother, I would certainly give you that advice. But seriously, (laughs) congratulations uh, on this major journalistic accomplishment. And also um, for the good that it will hopefully do for the detainees and for the Uyghurs more generally. Let's begin with what is in the leak. Uh, What did we learn from this trove of documents? Or did we already know the substance of the abuses and atrocities? But this leak provided evidence and details of the process. Uh, let's not get too much into the weeds. But could you give us a brief, big picture description of the contents of the leak and your reporting?
1: Sure. What these documents do is show, in the government's own words, that when they say that these are that these camps are vocational training centers that are essentially benevolent social services, that that's essentially a lie. There are statements within the what you know the the operations manual that we obtained that in, include statements like never allow escapes and never allow abnormal deaths. That's those are not normal things uh, for a government to say about its own programs. What that tells us is that people were not here of their own volition, that the conditions in the camps were very bad, and that the government knew that by putting people in these facilities, they were putting human lives at risk. The second cache of documents that we got were classified intelligence briefings that give a vast amount of new detail about how a uh, China operates what you know you could call uh, an ar- arrest by algorithm kind of platform. Lots of brand new details that gives us a lot more knowledge about how that works. And the third uh, document that we type of document that we received was a Uyghur language court case that shows, I would say, the tragedy of what happened to one individual Uyghur man uh, who was sentenced to 10 years in prison for advocating um, very normal tenets of the Islamic faith.
2: That's great. Um, perfect. We're going to get into all three of these these document types. Uh, but first, tell us what you are able to about the actual origins of these leaked documents. Do you know uh, who they were originally uh, written for?
1: Yes. So uh, the, the first, the operations manual, was approved by Zhu Hailun, who at the time was the deputy party secretary of Xinjiang and also served as the secretary of the Xinjiang Political and Legal Affairs Commission. And that's the party commission that is in charge of security in the region and has also been in charge of implementing the camps. So he was Chen Guo's right-hand man and uh, is also uh, basically in charge of implementing the policy of the camps. He wrote this, uh, and it was, we believe, disseminated to... Uh, the cadres, and other kinds of security officials who were responsible for running the camps. The second uh, cache of documents, the, the classified intelligence briefings, were in fact hand-signed by Ju Hailun himself. We verified his hmm. handwritten signature, and uh, those were also disseminated to the same, you know, the, the local party secretaries and other officials in charge of security on the local levels. And that was um, through a committee, um, a party committee with a, a long name, but basically the committee that is responsible for implementing the Strike Hard campaign. Right.
2: Yenda. Yes. Right. Strike Hard. Yes. So just to quickly ID Chen Quanguo, for those of you who don't know who he is, the listeners out there who might not know, he is the Xinjiang Autonomous Region's provincial, well, uh, the the party secretary, basically the top party dog in Xinjiang, and he used to be in charge of of Tibet.
0: Bethany, uh, what can you tell us about the individual or individuals who provided the documents or how they were acquired? And, you know, were there is the result of a hack or a whistleblower? Or uh, what can you uh, inform us as to the origin of these uh, leaks?
1: Sure. This was not a hack. This was a leak. Uh, obviously, the provenance of the documents is extraordinarily sensitive. But what I can say is that they came to ICIJ through a verified chain of transmission via Uyghurs outside of China.
2: Okay. So, um, w- about the provenance, uh, your lead piece on the leaked docs cites James Mulvin and, uh, who's a very highly regarded expert, especially on national security and tech when it comes to China. Uh, and he vouched for the authenticity of the documents. Can you, can you talk about what, what it was that had James convinced? Uh, were there other experts maybe who you also brought in who confirmed their authenticity?
1: Yes. We spoke with many experts and did many kinds of, um, Authentication work to make sure these documents were authentic. Hmm. Uh, James, um, you know, part of part of what he does professionally is to cl- is to authenticate classified Chinese government documents. Right. And when he looked at them, he said that they conform one hundred percent to every template of a classified Chinese document that he has ever seen. He explained that. Chinese government documents um, for, follow a very regimented kind of format in terms of their font, you know, th- how they do bullet points, uh, their, you know, what parts are bold, what kind of introductory language they use, where the, you know, where the chops appear, um, you know, the, the numbers that are, you know, the identifying numbers, all kinds of things like that. And he said that this conforms to those kinds of templates 100%. Other experts, including Adrian Zenz, have done their own careful authentication involving a language analysis. And we also did our own in-house language analysis on the documents, comparing the slogans and other phrases that were used in these documents with uh, slogans and phrases that appeared in public-facing Chinese government statements and publications around the same time uh, to to see if there was a match. And indeed, there was a very close match. And we also traced uh, Zhu Hailun's Travels around Xinjiang, and in June 2017, when the uh, all all of the uh, classified intelligence briefings that we received were disseminated, he had just that month he was doing kind of a you know. Um, I don't, what do you want to call it, like a a field research trip, you Mm -hmm. know, around Xinjiang that that corroborated uh, some of the stuff in those documents. So uh, we, you know, feel just absolutely confident in saying that these documents are authentic.
2: Great, great. This is the second batch of leaks that we've seen in just a matter of days, though um, obviously they were they were provided much earlier. They needed to be vetted. They needed to be translated and, and whatnot. Um, how would you contrast the significance of this batch of documents with the earlier batch that came from The New York Times? Uh, and maybe what's the larger significance taken together of all these leaks? Do they maybe suggest that there's growing opposition within China to Xi Jinping or to this policy of incarceration of, of mass extra legal detention in Xinjiang?
1: I think uh, that these the, the release of these two batches of documents are highly complementary. Right. so if you look at the New York Times leaks, um, you know it starts much earlier than our documents. It starts in 2014 and you have a collection of speeches from Xi Jinping and it what it really does and, and what I really loved about those leaks is that it, it answers for me what has been an incredibly important question, which is did Xi Jinping himself, Want this? Who's who? Did this come from you know? And it answered that question for us. Uh, it also gave us a lot of insight into the. Conceptual origins of these camps, uh, again, an incredibly important contribution to our understanding of where they came from and how the Chinese government views uh, their role and you know their purpose for existence. Right, right. And our documents essentially, I would say, pick up where the New York Times left off. You know, we have for the very first time. The Chinese government's own internal classified words of, and details about how the camps are supposed to be run and how they are being run. And we have incredibly detailed information about how IJOP, the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, um how it how it has collected information, what information it collects, how it it analyzes that, and how police around the region use um, that analysis to detain tens of thousands of people at a time based on essentially uh, you know complex and unknown algorithms. But and that's that stuff that wasn't known before. Together, I would say if you look at these leaks together, what they show. Uh, Well, first, you know, it's important to understand that the last time, to my knowledge, there were classified government document leaks were the Tiananmen Papers in in 2001. I mean, it's exceedingly rare for this to happen. And that's not a coincidence. That's not an accident, right? It's because people who leak classified government documents, uh, you know, they know that the Chinese government will kill them and... Perhaps kill their family members. So they're taking a huge, huge risk, and that is really effective in stopping leaks. So what we're seeing now is, you know, with the, with the Tiananmen papers, that reflected um, a period of crisis domestic, political, and social crisis, an existential, a self inflicted existential crisis in China. I think the fact that there have now been a succession of leaks indicates that there is another domestic, political, and social self-inflicted crisis in China right now, and people know it.
2: Fascinating,
0: yeah. Bethany, let's look uh, first uh, uh, into some detail at the longest of the documents in this batch, the so-called telegram. Yeah, It goes into quite a bit of operational detail. Yes. Can you sketch out for us what sorts of issues it addresses?
1: Well, the first section in, in that operations manual, as we are calling it, is a section on security. And again, this you know essentially refutes the Chinese government's implication, they haven't said it necessarily directly, but the implication that these facilities are voluntary, or at least that they're pleasant. Um, so you know, we see a directive to prevent escapes, we see a directive that the guards should undergo combat training, that there should be guard towers and patrols, that, that inmates should live an extremely regimented life for the sake of security. And it actually calls for specifically the secure management of toilet breaks to prevent right. escape. Um, so it's, you, you get a sense of this intense, you know, prison style military style uh life that people live that you know from the time they get up in the morning to uh where they sit to where they sleep to to you know when they use the restroom to where they stand uh, in line is all being dictated to them for the purposes of security
2: even the position they sleep in
1: yeah it's it's really quite stunning and i i did already mention earlier this line that's uh I would say, chilling, to, that, you know, never allow abnormal deaths. Now, that's better than allow abnormal right. deaths. But what that indicates is that, you know, the, the people planning this and Zhu Hailun himself knew that they were putting people into a situation where abnormal deaths, whatever they mean by that, could occur. And they're telling people to stop it. That's really scary.
2: Right. I mean, I imagine that means just deaths from from beatings or from torture or from suicide or anything like that.
1: Yeah. That's right. I, I I am assuming that is what that means. Yes.
2: Uh, this is great, though. The, the document comes from 2017. Um, and before that, uh, many people o- outside of China were not even vaguely aware of this planned program. But between the New York Times leaks and these ICIJ leaks, uh, we know quite a bit now about the actual timeline of how things were planned when the facilities were built when the first detainees were interred and and so forth can you quickly sketch that out for us what do we know now about the timeline of, of these things
1: um, well we know that the rise of uh, the the global rise of the Islamic state weighed very heavily on the minds of Chinese government officials and you can date that you know to 2014 2015 and that's certainly what we see uh, that's not to say that you know these camps are the result of you know, global terrorism, and they are most certainly not a reasonable policy result um, from that, because, you know, the the threat of religious extremism among Uyghurs is, is very, very small. Um, so you have, you know, these discussions starting in 2014. Uh, 20, I think, I believe it was 2013, the fall of 2013, when you had the first I, I think it is fair to say this was a terrorist attack that happened outside of Xinjiang, and that was uh, actually at Tiananmen Square in, in Beijing. When there was a, a Uyghur, a few Uyghurs who were driving a car, and they mowed down some civilians, some some tourists or some pedestrians, and killed them. Um, and that was, I think, a terribly alarming to to the to Chinese officials. And so you see, you know, not long after that, the launch of the Strike Hard campaign and increasing um, restrictions on uh, on Uyghur Islamic practice, on Uyghur identity, on language, uh, on bilingual education, and just a, a growing kind of security construction of a surveillance and security state in Xinjiang.
2: Right. There was there was also the there was the attack uh, in the train station in Qujing. Ah, uh,
1: yes, yes. In tw- that was 2015, right? That was, that, a was few that was that was April. I be- right. I was April. Yeah, I believe April 2015.
2: And actually, it was March 2014.
1: I, you know, some uh, people in China have called that China's 9-11. I, I think that's a gross exaggeration. Um, I believe it was 30, 31 people who died, 41, right around there. That's, I mean, that's obviously horrendous. And I, I don't mean to discount those deaths. And that was a great tragedy. And that was committed by nine, uh, I think they were all Uyghurs with knives um, at a train station in, in Kunming. Uh, again, just terribly alarming and shocking really for all of china and that that is understandable, but the reaction to that has caused great you know far more harm than than that attack did um uh, so then by, t- by 2016, you know, the discussions of this, the the, the idea of creating mass facilities, you know, to, to put, to, to basically re-engineer the, the minds of an entire ethnic minority population. This idea has already, uh, it already exists in the minds of local officials. And so you, in 2016, you start to see moves towards that direction. And late 2016, early twi- mm-hmm. 2017 is when you start to see the, the actual construction of camps and by mid-2017 they're in full swing and by the by November 2017 when the operations manual was disseminated you get the sense first of all that they had a very clear idea of the scale at which they were operating there is um, some lines in the manual about you know for 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 facilities and for training centers with more than 1,000 residents, be sure that you have food sanitation workers to prevent, you know, food safety or foodborne illness outbreaks or things like that. So they have a sense of the scale, but even more alarmingly and interestingly, uh, at the, near the end of it, there is a directive for every local level, um, all the local governments to, you must, you know, commit part of your budgets towards the building of these facilities. So you get the sense that they're basically detaining people faster than they can house them.
0: Bethany, what can you tell us about the Integrated Joint Operations Platform? Um, We've heard about it beginning last year when Maya Wang at Human Rights Watch wrote about it. But these leaks seem to confirm the worst techno-authoritarian nightmare scenarios that people have worried about when it comes to Xinjiang. A kind of deeply flawed, uh, pre-crime, predictive tech straight out of that Tom Cruise movie Minority Report
1: that's exactly right I, I don't I am I'm so sad to say that I don't think that that is an exaggeration mm. and having spent so much time looking at these at the uh, the classified bulletins it, it's really um, I, I would say that it's it's, uh, it's so chilling and shocking. And there's one in particular that I, I read. I had to read it several times as it kind of sunk in what was happening. So it's bulletin number, I believe it's number 14, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe number nine. I have to go back and check. Uh, I think it's 14, where it starts out by saying, you know, in the period from June 19th to June 26th, 2017, uh, IJOP produced a, a 24,412 names, and then it breaks down all the different locations there that those people are in, in Xinjiang, and it says, and in that week, you know, the local police, um, you know, located, investigated, and detained 15,000, some some number, more than 15,000 of them, and then uh, an additional 700 or so were criminally detained. The end, you know, just very, very brief, very concise.
2: Matter of fact, yeah.
1: I would say machine-like and cold.
2: Right, right. Those
1: right. are 15,000 lives that have just been shattered because of an algorithm. And we don't even know from this particular bullet, uh, sorry, this particular, yeah, bulletin, um, what that, you know, what were the criteria? We don't even know. And the rest of the bulletin is spent not, you know, asking, well, how do we know they're guilty? Maybe we should, you know, how do we know our algorithm is, is effective or good? No, it was spent... Analyzing why they weren't able to detain even more people, because the, the system had produced 24,000 names, and they were only able to detain 15,000. What we don't know is, was this happening every week? Because we, we only got a snapshot. We only got, um, you know, a, a, a limited number of bulletins. Right. Is there right. a bulletin being produced every day? Is this happening every week? I don't know. Um uh, you know, the the sense you get is just this a total removal of the humanity of the people who are being affected by this.
2: Bethany, do these new leaks reveal anything specific about the AI tech that's actually being used, uh, or is just the sort of enormousness of the database its key feature?
1: It, it does not reveal uh, anything on the technical side uh, of how it operates. Mm. What you see is more the results. Um, so. You know, I would say I got a sense, and this is, this, is not, this is not made explicit, but it is the sense that I got that IJOP, so it's, it's very much a, a two-way street in terms of information. So information is fed into IJOP, and Maya Wong's report did an excellent job showing how police have this app on their phone that connects to IJOP and they enter in information that way. But there's all these other kinds of information that go into it, too. For example, there was uh, one bulletin that talked about an app called Zapia, which is similar to AirDrop. And it's um, it's funded in part uh, through a, a Silicon Valley partner that's a Chinese company. And, uh, you know, it's very common, and very widespread use in China. Right In, in Xinjiang, there were... Yeah, it's a normal app. Uh, it's it's nothing nefarious. In Xinjiang, there were 1.8 million users of this app, and. They somehow got hold of all that data of the users. I don't, I do not know how they did that, and they f- put that into IJOP and then had IJOP analyze all those people for other signs that they w- deemed suspicious. For example, whether or not they had gone on the Hajj, which is a you know one of the five basic tenets of Islam. Pillars of, of Islam. Yeah, like. yeah, that's right. And those people were flagged for. Uh, <laughs> investigation and you know uh vocational training. Um let,
2: let me ask you so, a little bit about Zapya. Yeah. I mean this this is it's a, it's called Quaiya Ya in Chinese and, and the document refers to right. it is Kwa Ya just so people are are, are That's clear. Right um it this allows you to uh move files but i my understanding was that it was being used to move a lot of quranic passages not that there's anything wrong with that of course uh but it was interesting that Darren beiler uh who you talked to for this and who who's a columnist for us he talks about how this app was supposed to provide space for religious and cultural expression but that it instead became evidence of supposed religious extremism i mean that's there's something just really quite grotesque about that huh
1: it is. I'm a huge fan of Darren Beiler's work, um, and I, I think that he's exactly right. And it's very interesting because Zapya, in fact, has sort of promoted or marketed itself um, as being very friendly to Islamic users, and and you know apparently that worked. Uh, you know I, they were used, You know people were using it to transmit videos and and things. In the the document uh, in the in the bulletin. This is the only, actually, the only place in all of the documents that mentions extremist organizations and the Islamic State. So they took these 1.8 million. Users and fed it through IJOP to see to check if anyone had joined terrorist organizations such as the Islamic State. Now, I don't know how IJOP would have that information. I don't have. I don't know, um, but that was one of the things they were checking for.
2: Bethany, can you tell us about the point system that's being used inside the caps that's detailed in in, in the manual?
1: Yeah, this is something that you know we. The, a kind of revealed the documents reveal for the first time the details about this this point system so every uh, inmate uh, has like a score associated with them and that is determined by their test scores uh, on their Chinese language exams and on the exams that check their knowledge of Chinese communist ideology uh, and also on their behavior although we're not sure exactly what behavior that is and and so you know these, these points are used to determine rewards and punishments including when or whether or not they're allowed to see their family or have phone calls with their family. Uh, And also it plays into part of the um, decision on when they're able to be released. And so you have what is essentially like the world's most high stakes testing. Um, You know, this incredibly, this, this environment that is such high pressure. Um, I mean, they're in terrible conditions. They're away from their family. They don't know their future. And now they have to perform on these exams. But, but basically, what you have in the camps is a system that puts inmates under psychological torture and constant pressure.
0: Bethany, one of the bulletins uh, focuses on a particular behavior that seemed to get people flagged, and that was opening uh, online accounts, user accounts on particular internet services, um, opening them and then deleting them mm. um, using the same national ID card. Yeah. Can you explain why that would arouse suspicion?
1: Uh, we're not fully clear on that. Um, we So just let me just be clear that I'm speculating here. Um, I think that perhaps the logic behind that is if someone is trying to um, maybe um, avoid detection, you know, so – and it's, it's actually not clear what kind of accounts were referred It says open and close accounts three times. It's actually unclear what kind of accounts it's referring to. It could be maybe cell phone accounts or internet accounts or something. Um, the, idea, the idea is like perhaps this person was trying to avoid detection. Right. You know, they were using burner phones or un- unclear. But, but some, something like that, I think, was what they had in mind. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's what I would have guessed. So, uh, Bethany, can we talk about the court document that was included in the leaks? Um, and what seems to be very interesting here is uh, the apparently very low threshold of behavior that this individual, the accused, whose identity is protected in the leak document, um, the very low threshold of behavior that he, he, he engaged by him to land him behind bars um, for assembling a crowd to disturb the social order or was it his use use of the word uh, "kafir" or "kufar"? You know, the infidel. Uh, what was it? Was he like,
2: you know, like insulting Han Chinese people, or what was the deal?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's very astute that you caught that. I would actually say that, um, you know, he was what he was actually sentenced or like uh, found guilty of was inciting ethnic hatred and ethnic discrimination. And it it lists several kinds of behaviors that his co-workers testified. I don't know if they were under coercion or not about what he told them. And some of it was like, don't watch porn, you know, be sure and pray, things like that. Very normal sort of Islamic things. But there's this one line where he says, um... You know, don't, I forget exactly what it is. Don't do this thing, um, or else you will be like the Han Chinese coffers. And that's just a a word that means um, non believer
2: infidels yeah yeah so yeah basically he's just like you know this is haram that's haram
1: yes i would pr- i would prefer if you don't mind to translate that as as nonbeliever because an in- infidel um, has this sort of meaning of like let's go kill the infidel in the jihad but actually kafir is just a very normal word it's like gentile um so it's not—it's you know—in an Islamic context, and this is an Islamic context. It's just saying don't be like the unbelievers. Right. However, I, I think the use of Han Chinese coffers is perhaps what drove that um, that charge of inciting ethnic hatred and ethnic discrimination. So I want to talk, if I can, just briefly about like the nature of of religion and of Islamic practice in Xinjiang and its role there kind of socially, um, you know, Muslims in China are a very tiny minority and among Hui Muslims, which is a different ethnic minority, and in fact, the only reason that they're an ethnic group at all is because they're Muslim. And over the centuries, they found that was the thing that bound them together as an ethnic group. Now, Uyghurs aren't the same exactly. They are. A, they have, they've always had their own language, for example. But it's it's certainly the case that people there have, have hold, hold they hold tight to religion as something that helps keep them distinct, Um, you know, in in a country in which they're a tiny minority. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, to view religion as a a part of your identity that sets you apart from others. However, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, under Xi Jinping especially, is a is, has grown ever more suspicious of any kind of loyalty that could supersede the Communist Party, whether that's to a religion or an ethnicity or an ideology, such as a belief in democracy, for example. And it is it is my understanding that th- what you're seeing in this document is not the result of any kind of actual, you know, he was calling for some kind of jihad on the Han Chinese, but rather um, a fear and a you know this 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 fear on the part of the party of anything that could command the loyalties of Chinese of people in China.
2: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing that I noticed about this guy is that he seems to be very young. I mean, his status mm. as an adult at the time of of his committing the the alleged crime uh, was so not obvious that they felt like they needed to include his date of birth specifically to show that he wasn't still a minor at the time. Um, so Can you
1: remind me of the year of his birth? It doesn't say. I they they,
2: they 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 left it out. They left the year of his birth out. It's it's. Uh, I mean, I think it was good because it's no. They wanted to leave identifying. Oh, we
1: redacted it. He oh redacted yes. It, oh right. yes. I'm glad I didn't just spout that then. Yes, we redacted. Okay,
2: that I'm glad you did. <laughs> too. So, so, but but it's clear that he was he was you know close enough to the sort of the border of of. Of you know, 18 or whatever at the time uh, that he, you know, they wanted to make clear that he wasn't a minor. So I, I'm curious though, uh, uh, does the IJOP or, or do the Xinjiang authorities uh, target younger Uyghurs in particular or do they seem pretty agnostic when it comes to age? And what about gender or any other sort of demographic information about who they're targeting?
1: So I would be drawing on Adrian Zenz's work and this and he really is the person to ask about that. He okay. very recently um, published um, a, a a study of the demographics of people in the camps, uh, but my understanding is that they it leans very heavily male. That being, um, you know, a, a male of you know, um, a, a reason like a sort of young to middle aged male is automatically kind of a, a strike against you yeah. if you're a Uyghur in Xinjiang.
2: Yeah, yeah imagine that's the case.
1: One thing that James Mulvenon uh, said about IJOP that um, struck me as very important is that what's happening in Xinjiang is just, um, in terms of this sort of predictive policing, arrest by algorithm kind of model, that is only a, a small part of what IJOP does. James referred to it as a big cybernetic brain that is a physical thing, a large physical actual thing that is in Beijing. And um, and what it does is, you know, it they're trying to use the Chinese government is trying to use artificial intelligence to help generate a, a superior military strategy, superior policing strategy. Um, and, you know, when th- what James emphasized is that they're essentially trying to use that, in some cases, to re- replace human cognition and that that re- can result in very, very serious um, miscarriages of justice and even catastrophe. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think that what we're seeing in Xinjiang is just sort of a, a small not small, it's not small, is like a an example of that.
2: Mm. Yeah, it would certainly appear that way. Absolutely.
1: <clears throat> yeah.
0: So, Bethany, you live in Washington, D.C., a town that is obsessed with Donald Trump, court intrigue, partisan fighting, and impeachment. Yeah. Um, is this leak uh, and your team's reporting around it going to break through the noise in D.C.? Um, And if it does, and I may add a second question, what can and should the United States do aside from uh, applying uh, Magnitsky sanctions and the listing of tech companies on the entity list? What should we do about Xinjiang?
1: Yeah. I would say that um, the way that, you know, without commenting on, on timing, as it so happened, the way that these leaks came out last week with the New York Times and this week with ours, it's kind of it's kind of been a one-two punch. And I'm just saying that from a, you know, sort of in hindsight, watching how it's played out, that because it, it happened all at once like that, it's kind of created... Uh, a, like a a narrative about this people are people are curious about why all these leaks right now what does it mean uh and and in that way it does seem to have at least broken this through the surface a little bit um there's you know we've gotten a huge amount of media interest um even from i mean countries around the world i've had you know i've i've had media requests from Probably eight different countries so far, so there there is a lot of interest. However, you know the speed of our news cycle, and this will be a blip, the way that anything else is a blip, at least in terms of, you know, major headlines. Um, but there will be long lasting ramifications, I I believe. Um, Sophie Richardson uh, has um, said, you know that that it it seems that this uh, or she's kind of implied that this provides just incredible evidence for the International Criminal Court, uh, you know, proof, proof, you know, in the government's own words of what they are doing in Xinjiang. And that, that is significant. It's my hope that in the long term, with some of these very slow-moving mechanisms in government, um, that we could see some long-term ramifications of this. In terms of what the U.S. government can do, um, first of all, the U.S. government has done essentially nothing so far. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has made a few strong statements. That's good. I'm fine. I'm supportive of that. And, uh, you know, recently 28 different Chinese entities from some local governments and companies were put on the entities list, uh, which prohibits U.S. companies from um, exporting some products to them without Prior approval from the U.S. government—that is essentially symbolic. That's not that's that doesn't have that's not going to have any serious side effects on people. Mm-hmm. Um, so so far, basically, there's been a couple of very minor symbolic steps taken. You know, the passage or the you know people um, supporting the Uyghur Human Rights Act. Symbolic things are are important and uh, and they matter. Let me let me present what I think the the international community's response should be. I, I mentioned the Tiananmen massacre earlier, both as a, you know, it was it was a huge domestic um, political and social crisis in China, and an international crisis, because what happened was they faced a crippling, um, you know, a, a barrage of sanctions after that, and they became at least temporarily a pariah in the international community. It is my strong opinion and informed opinion that China should face those exact same set of punitive sanctions and that they should become a pariah in the international community because of what they are doing in Xinjiang. However, they will not because, you know, our geopolitical situation in our world today is vastly different and they have an incredible amount of economic power and leverage, dip- much more diplomatic power and leverage than they had before, and military um, strength. So it's, it's really about, you know, might makes right. And if something is wrong, but no one says so, what does that mean?
2: So Bethany, given those limitations, assuming that that pessimistic view is true, uh, that there is no way that the international community would mobilize around really broad, very strongly punitive sanctions, what then should we do?
1: I I I think it is. Let me be clear. Um, It it would be possible for the United States and the international community to to mobilize and to do things. China um, is responsive to international pressure. I think that sometimes people have this sense of fatalism that there's nothing that anyone could do that would change Chinese behavior, and that is absolutely false. That's right. Uh, And it is, and it has been false. I would say even with with relation to the camps. For example, uh, in the operations manual, the final section there was a section about maintaining absolute secrecy.
2: Yeah, they clearly fear exposure, yeah.
1: Yeah, they, they feared exposure, um and and they still do they still fear it you know you know what's happening right now inside the party is you know they're it's it's bad times right now like you know you you just know that there's a ton of pressure a ton of fear you know finger pointing um this is not this is not good for them certainly and there are things that can be done um for example and this would be basic bare minimum uh you know back a few years ago um The U.S. um, implemented the Global Magnitsky Act, which allows the U.S., you know, provides a very clear mechanism for the U.S. to implement sanctions on key individuals in foreign governments who are complicit in human rights violations. And the Trump administration has shown themselves to be very willing to use the Global Magnitsky Act. They levied sanctions under that act on um, several cabinet-level Turkish officials when Turkey was detaining an American Christian pastor. They could so easily implement those kinds of sanctions on Chen Xuan-guo, Zhu Hai-lun, even Xi Jinping himself. And there has, you know, in fact, we we know that there was a list um, that has been researched and created, you know, within the U.S. government specifically to do that. However, that has been held up. It is my understanding it's been held up because of the trade negotiations. So... I mean and that even that would be symbolic you know the, the u s could could implement many other kinds of sanctions it could it could um pressure i'm I'm not an expert on policy i'm I'm a journalist, you know, but right. there are many measures that the government could take um and they are not taking because I think a lot of the attention and the <coughs> the will of the government is currently directed in different directions and i I don't even need to mention the fact that, you know, the current U.S. president is not interested in, in supporting democratic values or human rights and certainly is not willing to give up his trade deal for something like that.
0: That's right. Bethany, before we go, you've done a lot of interviews about this uh, amazing work. Um, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't uh, asked you or that you haven't been asked before?
1: Um, I would like to add that, you know... China is by no means the only country that is guilty of committing, you know, mass human rights violations. For example, Myanmar, you know, had a campaign of ethnic cleansing against the Rohingya. But what's different about the camps in Xinjiang and the mass surveillance there and why every, everyone in the world should care and why this relates to everyone is that um, you know? No one looked to Myanmar. No one looks to Myanmar as a model of governance. Many people, many or many countries, look to China as a model of governance. And in fact, China, the Chinese Communist Party, promotes that. And not just you know, sort of generally, but they have specifically promoted this specific policy of camps as a good way to implement you know counterterrorism. They have said this should be a model. So you know this shows that this what's happening in xinjiang is not staying in xinjiang and will not stay in xinjiang and it's that's even more true of ijop and of the mass surveillance and data collection regime that we are seeing there um you know companies like huawei um And through, you know, through Chinese government initiatives like safe cities, they are actively exporting the idea and the actual technology to blanket entire populations in this kind of surveillance. These are already under, you know, these kinds of uh, the safe city thing is already under construction in places like Pakistan. So this has very profound implications for human rights all over the world, not just in China.
2: Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about this uh, really important work. I know you have had a punishing interview schedule. Meanwhile, let's move on to recommendations. But first, I want to remind our listeners that The Seneca Podcast is powered by China. If you like what we're doing with Sinica and the other shows in the Sinica Network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. This thing is just chock full of great reads on China, delivered to your inbox every weekday. Jeremy, Lucas, and Yuin uh, work very hard to bring you this tremendously useful product, and it's just great value for money. So sign up, spread the word. I also want to make sure you're all subscribed to our latest podcast, Strangers in China. Okay, on to recommendations. Jeremy, as is our tradition, you may go first.
0: Um, This I have recommended before on the show, but I want to do it again because of the content of this particular show, which is the book One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps uh, by Andrea Pitzer. Uh, I've now read it twice, uh, and it's uh, really worthwhile if you're thinking about Xinjiang, uh, because I guess uh, in some ways there are certain inevitable awful things that happen when you put a bunch of people in a concentrated space together to achieve some kind of cultural or social engineering aim. And it's not good, Uh, but it's a very powerful and uh, well-written and researched book. Great. Well, you've read it twice, so it's fair that you recommend it twice.
2: Bethany, what do you have for us?
1: Um, Well, I'm... (laughs) Maybe along similar lines, I'm currently reading *The Origins of Totalitarianism* by Hannah Arendt. Yes, Uh, and I've only just started it, uh, so I cannot give you know a very pithy summary of the book. But um, she does a good, an, an incredible, brilliant job of laying out what uh, authoritarianism has looked uh, totalitarianism has looked like in the in the 20th century with very strong implications for our world today and and I I chose to start reading that book because I feel like we are at a turning point in uh, in in our understanding, or we're in a turning point of what of what China is becoming. And I have very much felt at a loss over the past few months, especially. To, I don't have the vocabulary that I feel that I need to talk about what China is becoming now. It's I think it's a little bit difficult to simply categorize. Mm. And so I've been doing a lot of reading about authoritarian and totalitarian systems.
2: I gave a talk the other night uh, where I, I said very clearly that you know, we might not be ready to apply the word totalitarianism to the totality of China, but I don't hesitate to use it for what's uh, happening in the governance of Xinjiang. That 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 is truly, I'm, I think, by any reasonable definition, uh, you know, true totalitarianism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would strongly, strongly agree with that.
2: Mm. Well, uh, my my recommendation for this week, thanks, Bethany. That's a, that's a great one. Uh, Hannah Arendt is is always worth reading. Uh, yeah. In and I mean in the Chinese context, but also in the American context. And with that in mind, I recommend <laughs> the December issue of The Atlantic, uh, which is a themed issue called How to Stop a Civil War and really ought to be read cover to cover. Uh, I mean, it's just full of terrific essays about the state of our divided nation, including some really, really provocative pieces. I would just single out a couple of them. Uh, one is called The Dark Psychology of Social Networks, uh, another is called uh, Too Much Democracy is Bad for Democracy. And a third uh, that was really, it's really got me thinking. is called The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate. Uh, so all three of these and really every essay in in this issue is, is very much worth reading, uh, whether or not you are an American. Bethany, thank you once again for taking the time. And again, congratulations on this really, really important work of journalism for you and the whole ICIJ.
1: Thank you so much. It was definitely an enormous collaborative project. So I have I would like to thank the 17 media outlets from 14 different countries and the more than 75 journalists who also participated in in this.
2: Well, it's great work you did. Jeremy, great to talk to you as always.
0: Likewise, and thank you so much, Bethany. It was a delight talking to you, even if it was about such awful subject matter.
1: Likewise.
0: The Seneca Podcast is powered by China and is a proud part of the Seneca
2: Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at sinica at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at subchina news and make sure to check out our other podcasts. The Caixin Sinica Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices and ta for ta and the Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China. Oh, and don't forget our newest family member, Strangers in China.